My name is Adrian Sykes and welcome to a series of very special podcasts in association with Google. Union Black is an online multi-format content series across YouTube and Google Arts and Culture, featuring a curated collection of videos, audio documentaries, podcasts, stories and photographs. It takes us on a journey celebrating the contributions of Black British music artists, creatives, professionals and scenes. Told by the Black British music community, these stories demonstrate the undeniable influence and impact of Black British music and culture in the UK and beyond. This story and piece of content, the Black British producers behind Global Albums, is a series of podcasts that accompany the visual series with additional content that will spotlight a cross-generation of Black British music producers who have had an international impact. In this episode, we talk to legendary producer Jazzy B, the man behind the global phenomenon that is Soul to Soul. Jazzy tells us about the influences of his siblings and how his locality helped create his unique soundscapes, the importance of ownership and being an entrepreneur, the responsibility he felt towards his collective, recognition from abroad, and of course, we talk about Club Classics Volume 1. Here's Jazzy's story. Welcome to Union Black, the black British producers behind Global Albums, and it is my absolute pleasure and honour to introduce the one, the only the legend that is Jazzy B. O.B. Jazzy. Well gone. I'm good, my friend. How are you? Are you well? Everything is everything. <laughs> we kind of warmed up with a little little something, something at the top of this. But clearly, when we talked about doing this series, there was no doubt that your standing, what you've given to Black British music, what you've given to Black British culture, you were someone that we had to have in this conversation. So I really want to kind of talk to you about your journey, your life, and all the other bits and pieces around it about Black British culture and what's made you and what made Soul to Soul. So let's go back to the beginning. What attracted you to music in the first place? I guess as a West Indian, um, growing up in a household, my brothers having sound systems, music was always part of the daily diet, you know, whether it was listening to Lou Rawls or some other country and Western thing on a transistor radio against the backdrop of what was happening in the living room where... Only the elite could go, but the gram would be playing, particularly on the weekend. That would be just on all the time. So there's loads of things, you know. My earlier influences were anything from Benny and the Jets to Desmond Decker and Millie Smalls, um, right through to, you know, Dennis Brown, anything coming out of Studio One, et cetera, et cetera, to the point of about mid-70s as a teenager trying to find your tribe. Yeah, things changed a little bit. I mean, we're getting to the tribe thing, but you not only found your tribe, you created one. You created a whole movement and a sound and an ethos that lives to this day and is still very prevalent in the UK. But you talk about your siblings. How influential were they to you as you were growing up and your formative years in music? Well, your brothers and your sisters, you know what I mean? So anything from hand-me-downs to to the kind of suckling that, that you would do, you know? And as a kid growing up, it's, you know, there's no agenda, you know. So, um, you know, mum and dad are out at work and whatever, and your older brothers and sisters are almost like in that spot. So you, you're being inspired and, and so on and so forth. And they're, they're the people who I looked up to growing up. So it was an interesting time during the 70s, because I think much like what we're going through now, this shift it was kind of like that in the 70s. So anything from the three-day week 
to, you know, the Greeks and stuff like that coming over, um, a lot of the Indian people coming over during the 70s. And that little time of unsettledness um, in our society, in our community, and we've gone from Labour to a Conservative. The interesting time probably was post the Falkland War. Really? Um, because that's when all the technology and I think there was a bit more of a political shift. Again, creating, you know, our ideology, which loosely would have been based around the attitude of punk. I'm growing up here in London, right, right around the corner. Do you know what I mean? All these, yeah. this area in Soho was like a part and parcel yeah. of our nook and yeah. crannies, you know, anywhere from the market yeah. all the way through, you know, down to Bond Street. But um, the point I'm making there is that London was a really interesting place which allowed us to be that innovative and creative through the resources that existed. Yeah. So again, growing up, I would have been surrounded by all these things, you know what I mean, and tempted. It was um, lots of colours growing <laughs> up in the backdrop of, you know, foggy London, rag and bone man, <laughs> paraffin man, you know what I mean? Um, scrapyards, adventure playgrounds, yeah. black power, um, the Muslims, you know. Oh, mate. We, it was just an interesting time coming up and all of those things and above against the backdrop of church, which was more like a babysitting club because, <laughs> you know, that was the only time parents got you out of the yeah. house for a couple of hours oh. and that lot. The linkage that you made then that would be um, setting the tracks for you growing up. So the whole idea of rebellion and um, school and the structure and I guess really importantly, which I think a few of us miss, we were growing up in a class society. 100%. You know, the 14 bus was how I managed to get around as even a ute sound. And that was because members of our community worked on the buses. Mm. Members of our community worked in the hospitals. Members of our community had apprenticeships at places like Plessy before BT. And things like that, you know, you could go, you could take your experimental ideas and go a little bit further, end up at Edgeware Road, mm -hmm. Henry's or RTVC to buy your components, mm -hmm. go back to school where you were in your woodwork or metal workshops, uh, building my preamp, yep. building my speakers and stuff like that. These are all like part and parcel of the things, and that was what was interesting and great alongside the, we call it recycling now, but we used yeah. to call it hand-me-downs. That's right. You and also I mean? being incredibly resourceful, as you say. Oh, you, because, know? you know. The one thing that you and I will know is that what there wasn't a lot of was spare cash. And, you know, and some of us were smart and apt to the point of a tin of teacup can do a lot of work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> if you know what I'm talking yeah. about, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. So those days were, were, were fantastic days, you know what I mean? Polishing brogues, stay pressed Levi's. You know, this is the kind of world I grew up in, you know, and then moving on to Farah's and, and then taking another step inside of all of these things with your identity, mm -hmm. trying to land your own. Against the backdrop of, like I said, your friends who would have been Indian, Irish, massive Irish yeah. community I grew up with, um, Greek as well, and all of us standing together on this sort of like um, platform of um, being working class. 
and the whole class system and the glass wall mm. in terms of one's intention and where you could go yeah. to where you were supposed to, to go yeah. in terms of, you know, where the Commonwealth had us. Yeah. And you start growing up. Some of us start reading to the end of the book. <laughs> you know, some of us start instead of bringing stones and batons oh, to the riot, oh. some of us start bringing towels and water. Oh. You know what I mean? <laughs> and understanding that, you know, the way that the sound has to run, you know, the, the equipment has to be up to scratch. Someone has to drive the van. Someone, you know, understand? Yeah. Look after the door. We have to get the right. So the sound system and the way I grew up was always collective. And the resources from the sound system fed a lot of people oh. in my community. Let's go back and talk about your early introduction into the world of sound system and your first sound, which was Jarika, right? Mm -hmm. And you and Dad are kind of out there doing that. I mean, you were a teenager at that point, right? So really, to set the picture, my first paying gig was 1977, the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Yeah. Again, you know, talking about the community and us being in our place. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we do mention the fact that it takes a community to raise a child and my community helped to raise soul to soul right. and all the things that come from it kicked off there, right there yeah. in the heart of my community. Suppose that I would have been privileged to be at christenings, the odd wedding reception, yeah. funerals and so yeah. on. But, you know, probably more importantly, church and the church outings, which again was an extension yeah, of the community, yeah. a platform, and where maybe I did get a bit of sense realising that if I sold a coach worth of tickets, <laughs> these people would become what's called nowadays subscribers, and we used to call that followers yeah. back in the day. And then being able to divvy up the money for the coach against the tickets was always another challenge because everybody wants a freebie. So that's how we were able to find out different ways of um, every mickle, mecca, muckle. So if you, if you, if you I've lift bucks, for a long time. Not uh, for you know, you're doing time. some kind of work like that. Yeah. These were the kind of things that helped to shape it. And within that, we had the spirit of the Holy Ghost and, and, and church, et cetera, et cetera, against the rebellion and backdrop of what we why we were there and making good a situation <laughs> as we possibly could, you know? And, and I think that was the start of what they call entrepreneurialism and so on and so forth. In our eyes, that's a sound thing because I had to find a way of being able to monetize the fact that, you know, we had these ideas and things going on, but rent had to pay and we, we needed money to give mum pay went, away, you yeah. know? But what made you different, Jazzy? Because plenty of men had sounds plenty of men were independent but none of them were able to go to the level and the places that you were able to get to because clearly it was you'll tell me if there was some long-term vision when you started but you know you would have seen different sounds different people different people playing out different men having their own businesses but you went somewhere else so what do you think made you different from everybody else maybe watching them right and trying to work out angles of why it wasn't going any further than the community. Which, don't get it twisted, but often enough, we'll think about a way of putting this. I had different ambition. Yeah. 
my ambition wasn't to be playing in a community centre. My ambition really wasn't to play in a club on the level that all my peers had done. Because one of the most difficult things for, for I found growing up was when we listened to all these radio heroes from Emperor Roscoe all the way to, you know, the other guys outside of Steve Walsh. Of times I went to Froggy's club and we couldn't get in. I used to listen to Robbie Vincent every week, try and get in them clubs, weren't allowing us in. Even clubs around the corner. It was very difficult for us to get in. And I guess it was hard me being outside of these clubs, seeing my people as bouncers and always on the peripherals, hearing the music. Yeah, it was felt like rap attackers back us, you know, yeah. fucking everything up for us. And it, it was like I had the experience about being around everyone from Barry White to um, James Brown and Fella and them guys. And these are all things that happened later, yeah, but were able to yeah, put yeah. it into perspective yeah. for me. Um, we're having this one conversation with uh, Mr. Brown and, you know, he's telling us about, you know, there were times they couldn't, they were doing shows and couldn't go in the front door. Yeah. Don Taylor was my manager for quite a while and he had had a lot of experiences. He was little Anthony in the Imperials. Um, he was their um, valet. And, you know, I heard like, you know, stories. I'd been around a lot of people post-1990 um, to hear all these stories. And often enough, I'd be really confused because what had changed? So now we were going through the front door, but we didn't own the building. Yeah. You were doing this and then, and then on lots of occasions when you talk about entrepreneurialism and stuff like that, and you look at people's stories, James Brown's and so on and so forth. Sometimes what we don't realize, you know, what they teach you in the West ain't all of that. Meaning that even he had weird ways of doing whatever he did and so on and so forth. There was no doubt about it, hands down. He was an independent guy. You could say, you know, with a level of um, finesse and, and knowledge to get, you know, him and whatever was going on in the community. Now, you know, we don't always get it all right or whatever, but for me, that was a major point in my life to realise see my parents come up and all those other people and wondering, you know, they're always working all the time and it's like they're living so that they could work. Yeah. Then, you know, our communities, mm. our families were quite big. That's a whole other right, yeah. domestic <laughs> drama. But it's just coming yeah. out of the, sh the shackles of these things. And even within the, the world of the academics at that time, again, that was interesting. And the politics always played a role. And I say politics because... I was going to say, I noticed that you were very specific about using, it, using that particular word. I wanted to kind of pick you up and go, explain more. Because yeah, the, poli the politics was, you know, anything from the people making promises and stuff like that and luring you in. And then you're on this Ferris wheel, you can't get out. And and then all of us, the children of the Commonwealth, you know what I mean? There ain't no unification there, so how the fuck are we going to have any? Do you know what I mean? We're our, our examples. Yeah. And I guess really, again, ducking and diving, 
I came up behind the scenes as well. Mm. I wasn't always like a front person, you understand? Yeah. But when I say that, I mean, my knowledge goes back to, I started everything at the beginning. So I guess you could argue part of the success or whatever, or the existence is patience. Right. And it's knowing what you don't want because no one knows what they want. See? And then all the rest of the things are for the eye in terms of how you yeah. vision what the eye is doing yeah. for the eye. Yeah. So, you know, the, the collectively maintaining, taking the journey, mm. getting to the destinations, refueling, <laughs> and, and, and continue to keep on moving, <laughs> excuse the pun. Yeah. So in terms of the philosophy Summer and all that kind of rambling, a mix-up, mix-up. Yeah, but we, we're getting it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in some ways, it sounds to me that you saw the sound system as the beginning of the journey, where a lot of people saw that as the end of the journey for them. You know, the sound system gave you the opportunity to kind of go, okay, I've done this. I can now jump from here to there, where a lot of people were kind of going, okay, i got my sound, I'm playing, I'm making my dollar, I'm good that wasn't enough for you, whereas a lot of those guys clearly were satisfied and didn't know, didn't have that kind of inner drive and desire. Is that fair? It's an interesting perspective. And again, you know, I was watching people like Mr. Young, Dougie's, Suckle, and then some of the bigger sounds. That's where our knowledge and journey was outside of the few grocery stores and whatever, because somehow all the other communities seem to have... Uh, uh, <laughs> legitimate source of revenue whereas like we were constantly hustling and even in our own communities when we we're trying to serve our own there was it does feel sometimes now I grow up it just feels like something is in the air to make us fight against one another because there's no rational answer to no, it no there is there is no rational and, answer and, and somehow there feels that like it was always to keep us apart, you know? So one has to lead by example, and in that, it's time. He makes the time. We're living yeah. in it. So these are things that I've come to conclude now at this point in the journey, see? And there, there's a lot of things that have changed, and the world has become a lot smaller. And with that, a lot more chaos and, and disbelief with the politricans and, and all the other supposed leaders. Because from what I can remember putting together in my mind a sense, hearing people like Curtis Mayfield and the teachers before that and what they were saying, what they were talking about, against the backdrop of where I'm living in the present or what I'm going around me. So... I defend that in terms of my ideology and what I believe. And I guess also I got to the point and realised that, rah, Rome weren't built in a day, do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes time to get there. But, that, but, you know, people like Curtis and Stevie and those truth slayers, that was when we were learning a lot of our things. That's when we were kind of mm. really, really understanding what truth was. Right. You know, rather than just kind of seeing what was on the screen. And I know, for, certainly for me, Music was a real educator. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And again, as a youth growing up, you like I said, you smell your own. 
Yeah. Um, you might have to go through a few different dishes to realise which is the one. But yeah. And then often enough, yeah, you're bound by what you're hearing mm. and what you submerge yourself mm. in within the realms of um, who and what you're listening to. So let's talk about, obviously, you've Jarico's there, but then suddenly you decide you're going to rebrand and you're going to rebrand into Soul to Soul. Let's say it just got to a point where we were growing up. We weren't a ute sound right. anymore, so we couldn't play for shekels. And then we realised oh. it's a business, and then you have to put money in, do you know what I mean? And we were putting all our resources in it. Oh. The sound system and that whole journey, and for many years, we paid to play. So like they say about investments, you know? you got to, uh, you know, invested in yourself, yourself you know, right. uh, and so on and so forth. So these were all different ways of justifying the experiences yeah. that weren't so happy, were a little bit rainy and damp. Oh, yeah. But why did you continue? And, and I think that's what made the difference is that, excuse the cliche, man and man put in the hours, fam. We put in the hours and really put in the hours. It was a seven-day-a-week mm. thing for us. And we weren't moaning. That's all we know. People say, oh, that's hard and this and that. We don't know any better, do you know what I mean? So that's what it was like for us at that time, knowing that at some point, you know, righteousness will prevail. Again, that's a really important point, which is I'd love you to expand on, Jazzy, because one of the things that we know is we had to grow and we took our time. We went on a journey and you know, like I invested a lot of my time trying to get into the business. You invested a lot of your time to get into the business. There's a train of thought that a lot of kids, given the fact that we're on a very rapid instant society where they want things now, don't necessarily want to go on that journey. What advice would you give to those kids coming through now that want to kind of be the next Jazzy B, you know, in terms of you know, having a look back on your journey and the hours that you put in, what would you say to them? I've got to be honest with you, Adrian. It's a different time, fella. No, it is a different time. It's not, you know, those values and so on and so forth, they don't really exist. We've got rapid drying paint now. You know, we got we got concrete and, and screed that you can put down. It does its own self-leveling. You know, the gram. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I mean, I, so I, it's I about that. adapting. Yeah, no, I hear that. I think it's more about adapting. And like how we did in those days, you know, pre the eighties, it was adapting. Although, let's not get it twisted. I guess soul to soul in its entirety could have only happened here in London. And that was because of that level of innovation and creativity mm. that exists around these concrete pillars and the people that exist within it oozes out that kind of energy. And within that, that's what, the vapours of that is what kind of keeps you going, you know, because there's levels of opportunity. Yeah, and possibly the rest is knowing what you don't want. I want to go back because, again, we talk about the 10,000 hours and you did yours, but you weren't just doing that. I mean, you worked, you nearly became a PE teacher. You worked for the RNIIB and you worked as a tape op. And there was a quote that I read that, I wanted to kind of ask you about, you, you know, you talked about being in what you said was a hostile environment. You said it made me vexed in one way, but it made me see that there are parts of the industry that we're not taking care of because we always want to be so upfront. It also hardened me. Yeah, because I had the opportunity to take a basic job 
and do the basic things that people liked what you done. And I'd done the very basics very well. And that was what gave me that platform. So in regards to answering that question, it was almost like, you know, there'll be scenarios where people will come in and be shocked to see a black face in that environment. I used that to my advantage, you know, and... How did you use it to your advantage? Well, the fact that my identity was first and foremost, and maybe because I was raised that way, I guess I had confidence. <laughs> so if you asked me to make a cup of tea, so be it. But if you asked me to jump, I would suggest how high do you think I can jump? And that was more the nature of it. Plus, in terms of the hostile environment, in those days, a lot of union musicians and stuff like yeah. that, we were, uh, Nova was a, a, a studio that was known for doing adverts right. and, 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 and a little bit more geared up in terms of faster turnover and so on. So we worked with people like Hans Zimmer and... Uh, Bidu was one of our main clients yeah. and so on and so forth. And Great orchestrator. From and all those people, I just ended up building relationship maybe because of the environment and it was unusual. Yeah. So some people were on their tippy toes yeah. and other people saw it as a good opportunity yeah. to let off. And on both sides, I guess I was able to cope. And um, at some point, Pat just gave me the keys to the building and let's say the rest is history because that's where all my dubs were cut. Right. That's where all, a lot of mistakes were made yeah. in that environment. Yeah. That was your school. That was, that was yeah. That, yeah, I that cut was... my teeth in that. Yeah. London, we talked about London. We talked about we're, we're sitting in the middle of Soho recording this, but you talked about Soho and London as being a particularly colourful palette for what you did and the colours that you used. Tell us about them, that musical scene at the time because... I know kind of growing up, I'm getting a little bit older than you, but I mean, certainly there's so much that we absorbed during that time. And I'm sure that you were kind of soaking up the same thing. What were the kind of sounds and places and music we listened to in that era just before the real journey begins? Well, before setting out on my own um, in the days of spats and that lot, right. I would have had the picture already painted by my brother's. We were going to 20s in um, Carnaby Street wow. and, and all the other things that were going on at the time. You know, there were little little areas of this particular place, you know. You know, there's a lot of venues and clubs, like from 20s all the way down to the jazz clubs and, and, and the particular scene that all of my brothers would have tapped into. So were you kind of going to places? Because obviously in the West End there was 100 Club. I didn't start crack, coming to the West is. End until I was a teenager, right, okay. but I was in, living in a household with right, people right. who frequented they, all they of these places. Right, okay. Yeah, so it was almost like you had a sense of it anyway. And we'd come to Carnaby Street maybe to buy a Fares or, or some kind yeah. of Slazinger yeah, top yeah. or a Lylon Scott or something like that because we were all stylish in them days as well. So although that was the daytime scene, there was lots of times where you were just walking around because um, maybe I didn't even have the ambition at that time to go into clubs and so on and so forth because maybe I knew my lane because of me brothers and sisters right. and stuff like that. And meaning that, you know, 
obviously you're not as a little kid like that but when George and then Mandes started to do Andrew Club and Spats and all that lot in the afternoon when we used to go to school I guess you then meeting up with other members mm. of the community which led on to you know me being an avid follower of this gentleman called Steve Walsh and then moving on with that you had everything from George Powell lived round the corner on Fairbridge yeah, Road. Man, yeah. yeah, so yeah. we all kind of grew up together in in that area. And again, that was the alternative because growing up in them days, you had the skinheads, mods, Teddy Boys. Then you had the Sticks, man, the Roots, man, and then you had the Soul Boys, the Jazz Funkers, and so on yeah. and so forth. So there was all these different tribes. And then you had places that you could frequent. Um, some of the all dayers. Yeah. And then obviously royalty, where everybody would congregate from a particular scene. And again, you'd be exchanging and stuff like that with people from all over the place. And then by, you know, 1am, you're somewhere in North London yeah, between Hornsby and Muswell Hill at a blues. Um, and then by 6am, between 6 and 8am, you're back on the van picking up the sound system from the different blueses that you either hired or lent the gear out to. And again, this is all part of your community. So I would have been, you know, in them early days, things that pop out, the parties in West London, particularly Moxon and Lawrence's parties. I used to follow a sound back in them days, Michael, Fresh Beat. Then you had, you know... You had the East London side of it, um, Rocker G and all those kind of sounds, Skanker and all them, man, they're doing their thing. And then you would have had Rap Attack doing their thing mm -hmm. as you're coming back mm -hmm. around North London. Then you had South as well, yep. which had a little scene going on. But at the time, you know, West London was probably carrying the swing. And there, because I was still into reggae, you know, following, you know, some of the bigger mm -hmm. sounds yeah. in them times. And then you had the um, emergence of a British sort of sound uh, attitude <laughs> uh, against the backdrop of what was coming in from America and so on and so forth. And by that time, a few of the soul boys probably got jobs in independent record labels. So then yep. you were hearing, you know, anyone from Light of the World to Vegas Banquet stuff, Incognito, you know, Ron Carter with all the different productions and stuff that he did candidate um, and so on and so forth and these were all little pockets because now it was people that you were rubbing shoulders with at either Raw E or yeah, one of them yeah, sort of soul yeah. clubs and so on and so forth it's all starting to come together and then the relationships that you're building as you're growing mm. up and then you start you know from cool tempos all the way down to you know the different record shops I mean at the point where the bit I'm not talking about is me having my own shops and me yeah. having my own sort of world growing. It's because there's an inseparable link between the two things because as I'm growing, that's growing. And maybe that was the difference because I was doing this full time. Right. Most of my other colleagues were doing it as a release, yeah. as a part-time yeah. thing. For you, it was that, that was your day-to-day -day business. That was, that was your world. That was my whole world. You know what? let's get into it because we need to what was the moment there must have been a pivotal moment where the development of soul to soul just flipped for you whether that was got to talk about africa center because that was just such an incredible moment culturally as well maybe it just started off from the fact that you know even as a youth dad a and i we, we wanted to be the biggest sound system in right. the world 
and it was more or less having the plot. That. How are you going to do that? that? You know, how, how are you going <laughs> to be dumb and be the biggest sound system mm. in the world? And I guess that was my challenge. And I came up with a few brave ideas and probably the cleverest one was um, what we call releasing one of your dub plates and your specials, mm. which meant that my idea of it was that if I captured a groove that every DJ can work with or would need to have it in their set, because w at that point when I was coming up at about early early 20s, before that, you played the whole night because we were sound systems. So yeah. you had that thing about, you know, you come in, build up, build up, build up, and so on and so forth. So sound system had selectors, they had mic man, they had oh, all the different yeah. people in position. Come to pirate radio stations in the mid 80s, everyone was trying to make a name for oh. themselves. And I guess we just kept the same ethos as a sound system. Although we were on pipe radio station, instead of promoting our individual selves, we were promoting the sound yeah. system and what we were doing. And I guess that collective effort made a difference in terms of when people would physically see yeah. you yeah. and all the things, what they heard about, the look, the whole, not you know, 360, we were living it. And I guess that also, again, our timing was interesting but i think when people engaged in that and saw that it was a little bit more and it wouldn't be everybody for the hundred of people there maybe 20 people take us serious but that happened so many times that kept multiplying yeah, that's 20, that 20 and add 20, 20, 20. 20 yeah and that's where i talk about being patient and actually having a plan again from a to b so my philosophy was that was the same like when you went to kill a sound you know, you had to oh, select at the right the time, play the right tune at the right time and have your backative, you know, to brought the sound down. 90% yeah. of these things were pantomime because all of us knew each other anyway. Right. But that's my early experiences. What was the turning point? The turning point was moving from being a reggae sound exclusive to becoming inclusive. Right. And the inclusivity that's meant that we were now facing our audience and allowing the audience to be part of the scene that was going on. And then the penny dropped when people were taking the scene literally and it was their place. Yeah. Uh, that was when I think I knew I had something. So this is Union Black. We are talking about the great black British producers that produce global albums. Let's talk about the music. Let's talk about the moment that really kind of started off and let's move through the singles. You should tell this story because these moments are just seeded in black British culture. Let's start, of course, with fair play because that was, you know, I mean, I, I can remember as an A&R guy hearing that and it dropping, I was like down in the club. I was like, what is this? <laughs> what is this? When you put that play on for the first time, tell me what you felt like and then talk us through that journey from there on out. Well, you know, it was the catalyst that kind of helped to break what we were, were or the journey that we wanted to take. Mm. So it was the ticket to the journey we wanted to take. And within that realm of the ticket, it did conjure up everything that we were about at the time. And technically, if you break it down musically, it's, it's a groove that's kind of infectious. And 
at the time, being a fan of, you know, all the different producers and the music that was inspiring me, it just seemed to capture the essence of everything that was was going on at the time. Yeah, and I guess with the skills of everybody around, we were able to bring it to, because the dubs and the mixes I were playing before were all, like, mainly cassettes that I'd run in the dance. Yeah. And that's because we were developing it, and every time... We used to use it as um, to help to tune up the sound. Oh, okay. Right, okay. so the groove of that is what that how all that right, thing okay. started. And initially... If you came to Africa Center, you would have heard Fair Play before we voiced it. It would have had the speech on it, Martin Luther King, mm. I Had a Dream, or somebody would be emceeing or singing on, on top of it. So quintessentially, it's a special. And again, that's why I was kind of brave enough to make a suggestion that if we were going to be the biggest sound system in the world, how would you do it? And I just had this bright idea to... Um, do it with our dubs and that's really how it started and, and in a very strange way that's what made it simple enough for us to do it because we were creating concepts with the records we were making at the time hence calling the records club classics and what had happened with the music as it evolved we were involving as well so basically i had a way of um putting out our ideas yeah, that's how I kind of yeah. looked at it. And then the rest of it had to be packaged as um, you're going into this music business. And I guess that's how I managed to navigate it around in those early days, you know. The first record um, was actually a double A side and commercially Feel Free was what was released to keep Virgin and that yeah, side yeah. of it in some kind of perspective. Um, the deal was supposed to be two singles with an album and I knew a little bit about the A-side issues and so on and so forth. So on the other side was Fair Play and I was able to feed both markets, right. um, knowing all the DJs and stuff that had frequented mm. me for the last yeah. sort of 10 years prior to us doing that and then seeing how the scene changed. And again, our position, you know, we were one of a few bootleggers yeah. Mr. Palmer and Jetstar were very good to me, very good to me, very yeah. good to me. I mean, that was, again, one of my sources of inspiration. So I always big up Mr. Palmer and Jetstar. Alongside Buster and all the other guys that were before me, they were all part and parcel of putting the concept together and, and knowing what I didn't want. Yeah. from putting out the record mm. and, you know, basically <laughs> the potential of what was there. Listen, I mean, when Fair Play came out, say like I was working in a record company. I was one of many men chasing you down at the time. Our old friend, God rest, Mick Clark, mm -hmm. was the lucky recipient of your signature. How was that experience for you within Virgin, kind of working as someone who's always been entrepreneurial or free spirit, been able to kind of do what you wanted to do? How was it working inside a label for the first time? And how receptive were they to allow you to do what you wanted to do? One of the great things about the relationship with the subsidiary label 10 Records of Virgin was definitely Clarky. I mean, rest in eternal peace. Yeah, yeah, he was one of a kind. But probably the conduit, which was Keith Borton, who got the deal through. And naturally, my relationship with Nelly, I guess we were 
the prime candidates for this scenario at the time. But I chose Virgin because they had a series of records called Frontline. Oh, gosh, yeah. And they were 99 pence and they yeah. were really quality yeah. stuff and everything. And which I did end up working with Chris anyway. Ireland was a really a cliche when it came down to the black scenario. Plus, they already had... I think Ireland had, at the time, Steel Pulse, which I was a massive fan of, and they already had Aswad. Yeah. So I just needed to be a big fish in a yeah. small pond, yeah. and um, Virgin was right underneath that. And I think their ideology kind of suited me a little better as well, because they were sort of left of centre. And... I can't remember anything being too difficult there. Jeremy Lascelles, I think, was running the business at the time. He was always miffed of why we needed this, that, and the other. There's a great quote, which I can say. Um, now, in them days, there was one floor and there were partitions separating all the little booths of the labels. And I remember Keith going to Jeremy for a couple of quid, asking him to make a video. And then him sort of saying to Keith in, in, in a few words, <laughs> why the hell does a black dance act need to make a video? And that was nearly perfect because there was nothing sinister in that, in just the fact that they're a subsidiary label, they're a dance act. What dance act makes a video? Well, we do. And that was an interesting thing because the difference between somebody throwing their toys out the pram or using that to their advantage, which is what we were able to do and say, yeah, well, that's the uniqueness about us being a black dance act and actually having a video. Enough said. And that's how forward the label was yeah. at the time, was if I was at Beggar's Banquet or Decker or somewhere like where their other man was. You wouldn't, know, you wouldn't have got that. You, you don't think you would have got that support. It wasn't even get that support. I didn't necessarily go to the label. The label came to us. Yeah. So they knew what they were getting. And the other good thing about our scenario, not that it was any harder work for Clarky, but he was a proper music head. Oh, yeah, big time. Clarky bought music from me. Yeah. And um, Well, I remember Mick, Mick you, and you'll remember this. I mean, there was City Sounds and Holborn. Yeah, Dave and them guys. Yeah, so, yeah. But, yeah before that, Mick worked behind the counter yeah. back in the day. So all of them guys from the areas that they, they were all old soul boys. Yeah. Plus Mick had, um, through his position, he was travelling a lot in and out of New York. Yeah. And at that period of time, I had a residency in a club called Mars in New oh, York. Oh, yes. I used yeah. to play on the top floor there. Yeah. So that was always interesting, you know, bumping into people at the airports or the different people that you had in common. So I was always, you know, in and around yeah. something that did I go on <laughs> in a them times from even the early days of Tongue getting the music from Timmy and that. So I used to get all doubles of, like, if he was yeah. getting that, I'd get that. Da, da, da. And yeah. because they were serving them, man, they'd be able to yeah, serve so me you. up and all. And I guess that's another way I was able to kind of cut my teeth because wow. playing at Mars, I played the same kind of set, a bit eclectic like as I do now. And that was the difference because a lot of guys were either moving into the Chicago house scene yeah. or they were trying to be hip-hop. No one was being authentic. And my thing was always, from since the, the, you know, the early 70s, 
it was the influence of all the music, which is why, again, I always say about London being very interesting because it was always eclectic. It, it wasn't as one way as it is now. Though we were soul boys and you're trying to find your tribe, man, it was just different in them days. I mean, the, the, everything was sweet, man. It, you remember Horseshoe, you know, and you'd hear <laughs> their man <laughs> there playing. The jazz. We were really lucky down south, man. So I guess, again, that would be reflected in my palette and what I would expect to absorb, hence what I was going to be able to regurgitate. So it's all, all of those yeah. things were all part and parcel of it. Somebody said to me once, and I'd be really interested to get your take on it, that without that kind of absorption, without those different types of music that we were exposed to, which were, there was Radio 1, there was a few little odds and ends that we used to kind of gravitate to. I'm sure you listen to the same special shows that were on air at the time and, you know, the little part radios later on down. But without those kind of different things where you were bombarded with everything, there may not have been a soul-to-soul in the way it was because that's what you, you take in, that's what you, you get out again. Is that fair? Not really, because I think really with soul-to-soul, it's more the backdrop of London. So, you know, who knows? It could have been a punk well. sound system or something. But the whole idea of the movement, I think where we were growing up had an equal amount of influence to what we were putting yeah. out. Yeah. You know, because it was a mashup of all the things that drew our attention and had our interests. I mean, I was there Friday night, watching Jackie Chan at late night. And at the same time, I'll be at the warehouse parties that didn't have any music in it. So a lot of people don't know those early days of them warehouse parties were just fashion joints where people would um, literally just go to hang out, right? So a lot of those parties in the early days, what we would set up our physical sound system, but it never signed on. It was part mm-hmm. of the aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I would have grown up meeting other people and extending my horizons. So that's anything from the Wild Bunch yep. at the time um, to Ray Petrie at the time to Nemeth at the time, uh, Vivian Westwood at the time, you know, Jamie, Crunch Brothers and Dirtbox Phil and all those other guys. I was a part of all yeah. of that as well. Do you know yeah. what I mean? God, I'm old like dust. I remember. Are we all though? But those. I even remember. It's another thing shaping the way of the whole club scene. Ministry opening. Yeah. And and toying around with all the equipment and stuff like that because I had the links with, you know, the shelter and Dave and all those guys in New York. Yeah. Let's talk about the singles leading into the album, but also whilst that's going on. The entrepreneurial Jazzy B is still running because the shop in Camden High Street is kind of like, you know, is is kicking up a storm. Yeah, I had I Trevor had, running the shop in yeah, Tottenham Court Tottenham Road. Tottenham Court Road, yeah. I, you know, and listen, I, so I spent my money down there. My wife, <laughs> my wife had a lovely leather jacket out there, <laughs> which, she, which she used to love. But, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit is still running. But the music at that point is really really the kind of like the high point for soul to soul for the majority of people mm. around the country talk us through those successful singles and that and that journey well the first one like we talked about would have been feel free and and the double a side was fair play after us getting traction there we already had keep on moving ready to go and putting the finishing touches to the album 
which we couldn't conclude. And then with the velocity of of keeper moving and the stir that Fair Play had made, I was invited to meet Jeff Aeroff and his partner who were just about to open Virgin in LA. And for whatever reason, he just took to what I was doing. And I held his hand and he took me through America. And like the first thing where Jeremy was saying, what do we need to make a video for? The next single is we're out in America with these guys from LA who are just saying, it's all about the visual. (laughs) Um, So the two things just kind of worked out. And and, um, yeah, those guys, we both hit the ground running because we had already conjured up massive support in New York through basically Bobby Condors was an intern working between BLS, um, Red Alert, and Frankie Crocker's Drive Time show. Um, I think Armstrong and Stretch would have been on BLS and then Red on Kiss. Anyway, we just come in at at the right time. Bobby recorded it on the 08-track cartridges, uh, which is Keep On Moving. And somehow, the synchronicity would have it, Red Alert played the song two or three times straight after Frankie Crocker, who was the leading DJ in New York at the time. Because Crocker was huge. Yeah, so we got the... He liked the song that much. He used it in his drive time because the song was called Keep On Moving. And at that time, Manhattan would come to a standstill in rush hour. And then the transition between him coming on and Red Alert later on, wow, it's just like you had both ends of the the bookshelf going there. And that's what happened. So at one point, throughout places like New York and that lot, you at least would have a minimum, and I'm talking conservatively, an hour's worth of airtime, which was massive, which was massive, massive. And then, yeah, the record um, shot up the charts, got to, in them days, it was black charts on Billboard and that, got a bullet, and then kind of crossed over. (laughs) And in those immortal words, um, the rest is history. Then post that, the album, was a great yeah, idea yeah. because the first album was setting up to be released simultaneously with Back to Life in the Americas. Or right. Let's talk about the rest yeah, of the world because yeah, yeah. that had the impact um, coming back, the ripples there. So um, we were getting ready with the, with the album release, following it up with the next single, which was Back to Life, but we hadn't concluded Back to right. Life. So it wasn't on the album. And we had put the original a cappella, oh, which is yes. However Do You Want Me, on the record because the idea of Club Classic Volume 1 was a concept record which would lead in from the a cappella. That was to set up the drama going into the reprise um, explaining what Soul to Soul yeah. was about. So that was the concept. But America didn't get it. So though I'd shipped over 280,000 records through the distributor, they shipped the records back because it didn't, didn't have, happen. and it also had the, the title, Club Classics. So the fact that those records had gone through the system and that and now became mm-hmm. cutouts, 
I'd done the unobvious thing of obtaining at least 70% of those returns and put them out in my own shops with my own distributors, mm. which then all the hip-hop guys were trying to buy oh, that uh, because it had the acapella on. on. They could and, drop it over there. And yeah. I put out the Back to Life on that album, oh, oh. calling the album Keep On Moving in America. So some people thought it was genius, but it was actually necessity. And it's it a bit my, of both though, right? Because, well, you know, I mean, because it, there's a plan there, Jazzy. You're not just kind of... We call this a happy accident because what happened from that was that, you know, I had enormous sales in the first shipment and they couldn't literally... It was literally Virgin's fastest-selling record at that time. Yeah, and we, we definitely need to talk about that. I mean, I'm interested you talk a lot about America. I mean, obviously, the, the, you know, there was huge success here. But there is something I wanted to talk to you about, and that was that moment when, at 1990, I mean, I was sitting there, it was a Sunday night, I'm in my finery, it's the Brit Awards, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is, this is a lock. Jazzy's going to win this. It has to be. It's the biggest record of the year. It's, it's changed the game. There's been nothing bigger, and it doesn't. You then go to America and you pick up the Grammy. Tell me about those contrasting emotions and what you were feeling at that particular point in time. Both those moments, separated by weeks, right? Well, the difference was we were at the Brits and we performed at the Brits. I know, I was there. But nobody said you were going to win a Brit. So we hadn't gone on with the intention of winning. Well, we had gone on the intention was obviously making some noise and sometimes you have to know where you are. So it was interesting that everybody else made the noise and we didn't. That's right. And the beauty in that was that on that evening, again, this was confirmation that we'd done something significant, is that the organisers did not present us with an award but had us involved, and I'm not saying, you know, yes, master there. Well, what ended up happening, somebody who won an award, and her name is Naina Cherry, Cherry yeah. she mm. broke her award in half yeah. at the show okay. and gave me the head of the award, and she took the base of the award, and that was her way or, of um, rewarding yeah. us. Or, or sharing, an, 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 acknowledging, the, acknowledging, and the, sharing, yeah. and in a strange way that had much more of a bigger impact. And then when we went to the Americas, the only show I was there for because I wasn't there for the Grammys because I didn't have any idea we were up for a Grammy. I went back later on, just before when we went to sort out the production for the tour. And um, the Grammys held another reception for us to give me the Grammys. And then I think the week, that week or the next week, we got the Soul Train Awards. Yeah. And I was physically in America to, to accept the awards. And then by that time, you know, you had like, you know, this, they had BET, which came out and a huge presence. And then I got honoured by the NAACP, um, the National Advancement of Coloured okay. People, kind of when they were a little bit together. And what was interesting about that is because 
I was in America domestically for a really interesting time, which was 1990. So that was everything from the Rodney King scenario through to all the other little bits and pieces that were happening. Yeah, it was really an interesting time being in America and being embraced in the way we were embraced because much of America didn't know that black people existed outside, although they had Billy Ocean, although they would have, you know, tasted Eddie Grant and so on and so forth, and even Boney M and these other people. So there were other people outside of the Americas. But your average American wouldn't have been aware. And... um, it was a combination of the two things. Uh, that sparked a lot of attention. And the black movement was uh, kind of on the rise right. then. So Chuck had come out with also Fight the Power. The massiveness of what was just taking place from Spike Lee's 40 Acres and a Mule yeah. to a lot of the other things. So it was just a really interesting time. Because... That sound, that drum pattern has been repeated and kind of mimicked consistently now for, what, 30-odd years. How do you feel about that when you kind of hear that, hear it coming back at you? Just put me in the mind of being like a traditional sound man in your sonar pop. <laughs> um, you know... Um, you know, it is, it's flattering, you yeah. know. It kind of used to get on my nerves a little bit because you heard it so much in all different mm. guises. But what's wonderful now is that people come and ask to use the sample or any of the parts because it, mm. it, um, it's available. And, and I often go back to a lot of the guys and, you know, explain that's the way I started. So the concept really was to be a part of everybody's food. Right. And... Um, kind of managed to do that. The closest some people get to you is that piece of music that I yeah. hear. So that must fill you with some sense of gratitude and kind of of happiness that you've been able to kind of at least kind of, you know, subconsciously kind of touch people in different ways and yeah, and also influence them in what they've done because not only have you kind of made what was one of the greatest black British albums of all time, you created a sound, you created a genre, you created a culture that still lives on. That's got to mean something to you. The young boy from Hornsey probably couldn't have thought of that when he was kind of growing up, pushing his sound around in in a shopping trolley, right, to get from place to place. I guess if you pull it like that, yeah. yeah. Very proud of it and with everybody, I, it's n- not me alone, you know what I mean? It took an, all the others to believe in what I was doing at that time and then playing their part to their best ability mm-hmm allowing this situation to happen. And I can tell you straight up, none of us was dreaming about it being around other than the fact that when me and Nels decided to, you know, we're going to go with the title club classes because we really wanted to make an indelible mark on our community, music community, everything they'd given to us and what we were giving back, which is why I'm quite proud of the fact of when people are sampling it, legit or otherwise, it's, um, it's testament to you know, everybody's input and how, how how good a project that that is. You just didn't bring yourself on this journey. Mm. You brought a whole crew of people with you as well that you've lifted up. They've been with you and you've kind of gone, you know what, through Souls of So, through your collective powers, everyone's come up together and everyone's enjoyed that success. Yeah. How do you see that reflected 
what your template being reflected now? Do you see it anywhere else in, in the music business of today? Um, not sure that I've looked for it. And if you talk about similarities mm -hmm. or whatever, they were so solid and what Mega does or what he was doing with that scenario, I think that's interesting. And I think if you look in reflection today, just look at Big Mike and Stormzy, what's happening with that. And, you know, pre that there was, you know, from Congo to all the other sort of stuff that's been evolved from yeah. there, you know, your Wookiees and so on and so forth. So the sound system feed a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people. And, you know, their input has been equally as important as how the journey started. Judge, I think there's no doubt about it. I think, you know, when you... All of us that have gone on a journey, you know, you know, your torch, the torch you carried has been passed to another man down the road. I think that's clear by the lineage and the development we've seen in black British music and black British culture, but also black British business mm -hmm. and the entrepreneurial spirit, because that's something else which is really, really important in this story as well. But it's, it's the music and the business, because it is the music business, came together. But you were the first person that was probably able to marry them both together really, really well. Yeah, I mean... When you look back at it. Yeah, by design, it was because I had to monetize it, you mm. know, and it had to be done seriously because we had responsibilities, you know what I mean? So in a haphazard way, we were able to turn mm. it into some kind of business. And I guess, again, choosing the right people around you, we were able to um, develop it, nurture it, and, and allow it to grow. So when you look back now, you're talking about... 2023, if you were going to give advice to the next generation of young producers, what would it be? My advice to everyone would be just obviously keep their ears open and no one's going to hear the tunes if you just got them at home. You know what I mean? Put your ideas out, be out there, be open-minded and just believe that collectively you'll gain a lot more than you would as an individual. And the basic core of that is perseverance. Believe in yourself and just, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. So you've been sound man, DJ, musician, producer, entrepreneur, definitely a visionary. Don't forget my paper round. Yeah, we can put the paper round in and sound and, and tape <laughs> up as well. Yeah. But when you kind of look back, which of those has given you the most pleasure? DJ, selector. For? For my sound. Right. You know? which in, uh, inevitably is for myself. So, you know, being comfortable to select and play. And, um, yeah, I, I love music. I live music. So any kind of music, I love it. And looking back, as you sit here now, did you ever think as that young, young teenager that you'd be able to, see 40 45 years time kind of go what a journey that this it was what you wanted do you ever look back and think it's not real i've never known what i wanted but i did have the balls to go ahead and call the records club classics <laughs> so i think everything else is in the detail and that's not being arrogant or anything that's just about that's how you got to believe in yourself and and for me you know, that's how great the project is and I'm still living it today, which is how much I believe in 
in, in what I've done. Listen, I mean, I've read a stat somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, was it 6.8 million albums and 35 territories? It's got to be more than that, right? I never count. Okay, well, I had someone do it for me. That's what someone said. The shops, the sounds, the culture. All I can say, Jazzy, is that, you know, for someone who's known you for a hot minute, it's been an absolute pleasure just kind of seeing your journey, reveling in it, being able to celebrate your success. Do you think of yourself as a pioneer, as an icon? No, I'm just my mum's baby, you know what I mean? Getting on with it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that that is probably as good a place as anywhere to finish. Jazzy B, OBE, thank you for being a part of this Union Black. Blackbridge producers that have produced the best of the global albums. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Oh, good blessing. I'm Adrian Sykes. And this has been Union Black, the black British producers behind global albums in association with Google. My thanks to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, to Engin Hassan, our producer, and to Yao Wusu and Shonsor McCallum at Google. To check out and discover more stories from Union Black, please go to Google Arts and Culture at artsandculture.google.com and share and let us know your thoughts using the hashtag Union Black. This has been Union Black, the Black British producers behind Global Albums. Thank you for listening.